Good morning, Disciples Church. My name is Seth Hahn, and it is my pleasure to read scripture this morning, which is from 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. It's so good to see you. Good to be with you as always. Uh, my name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are glad that you're here on this holiday weekend. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Several years ago, Jessica and I had the opportunity to go to Italy and uh, lead a mission trip where we were ministering with a church in the north of Italy as they interacted um, in a vacation Bible school, uh, uh, English training camp, all kinds of different opportunities for the kids of this particular village in which we were ministering. And so uh, on one day, we had asked the pastor of this church, what is it that we could do today that would really be helpful for you? And he said, well, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to go into the town square, kind of the central area of the city. Uh, I'm going to give you a bunch of brochures, a bunch of information about our church, and I want you just to distribute it to people, and I want you to say porque, which means uh, for you in Italian. Just hand it to them, say that you don't have to answer any questions. We're going to send a translator along with you. If anybody asks questions, you can just point them to that translator, uh, and she'll be able to give them more information about the church. And I thought, well, this is pretty easy. It's hard to hard to screw that up. It seems pretty straightforward. And so we went into the town square and I'm standing there and as people are walking by, dozens and dozens of people at the end of the workday are coming down this main pathway and I'm distributing my brochures faithfully, uh, saying in my best put on Italian accent, which I don't even know if that's what Italians sound like when they say it, but I was trying my best to fit in. And so I'm distributing all of these flyers and handing out these brochures. And probably after about an hour, hour and a half, um, someone comes up to me and says, are you saying porqué? And I said, yeah, I'm saying that's what he said to say for, for, for you. And he said, no, 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 it's perte. And I chuckled to myself and made a comment to whoever I was standing with and, and then proceeded to hand out the rest, of the, the rest of the brochures to people saying the correct phrase, which is perte for you. I went back and I was sharing the story with the other folks uh, we were ministering with and I was kind of chuckling to myself about it. And the pastor, uh, or maybe it was the translator, came over to me and, and said, I'm sorry, what was the phrase you were saying? And I said, well, I was saying porque. And then she informed me that porque was actually Italian slang for pig. <laughs> so I had been distributing brochures for this church while calling all of the locals pigs. And it changes the tenor of the conversation a little bit when you find out those sorts of things. Because in order to discuss and understand 
uh, understand people where they're at, we have to have a common language. We first have to have a shared language with an agreed-upon definition of what it is we're saying. And that is just as true as we're using English words as it is in Italian. As we come into the text that we're looking at this morning in 1 John chapter 3, we find this word love used all over the place. In fact, that word love is going to be used 36 times over the course of chapters 3 and 4. If you were to go through and just highlight, what you'd see is that word love over and over and over again. And if we don't have a agreed upon common definition of what that word means, our application in the life of a believer is going to be all over the map. In fact, we may end up accidentally offending in our use of the word love. As we finished looking at 1 John chapter 3, verse 10 last week, it stated this. It said, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. John, in this chapter, is working, continuing to work, to give us an assurance of our belonging to Christ. He doesn't want us to question whether or not we know him. He wants us to be absolutely confident in our relationship with God, to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we belong to him, that we're part of his family. And so he's giving various ways that the people who identify as Christians can actually, can actually look at their own life and diagnose if they know Jesus Christ. And this idea of love being a family trait for Christians sort of sets the trajectory for everything that's going to be addressed in the remainder of this chapter and into chapter 4. And of all of the words or all of the ideas that the Bible could use to define what it is that defines a Christian, perhaps the word that is most often used is the word love. It's the word certainly that John uses the most, both in the gospel that he wrote as well as the epistles that he wrote to define those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And he continues that theme in verse 11 by saying this, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. This message of love, that's the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And the problem with the word love as it's translated here is that we don't always have a clear definition of what it means. I mean, if we were to go around the room this morning and just ask without any context, how would you define love? The answers would be all over the map. People would talk about family and relationships and sacrifice and provision. They'd talk about feelings and emotions and passion. They'd talk about commitment. They'd talk about all kinds of different ideas. But until we have a common understanding, an agreed upon definition of what that word love means in our context, it will lead us to all kinds of different applications that may have nothing to do with what the gospel is trying to get at. Because in our language and in our context, we use the same word love to describe the way that we feel about our spouse or our children and to define the way that we feel about brats and the Packers. And there is, hopefully, an ocean of difference between the way that we would apply those words in those various contexts. So when we don't take the time to define a word, we're going to have wildly different applications of what it means. But John here has a very specific meaning in mind. He uses the word agape. And agape, as it's translated by one particular scholar, is to love, to regard with affection, to have loving concern. He's describing here a love 
that is not conditional upon someone else's worthiness of receiving that love, but rather a love that is born of a sincere care and concern for somebody else. Unconditional in nature, meaning it doesn't change with what somebody else does or how they act or even how they respond or receive that love. And likewise, is not just a feeling and an emotion, but rather is concerned with the well-being of that individual. I think perhaps the best definition, at least my favorite definition of love, is the one given by Thomas Aquinas when he said, to love is to will the good of the other. And the reason that I love that definition is because Aquinas in saying that is saying, it's not just that I feel for you, though certainly I hope that I do, but really what I'm after when I love you is I want what's best for you. And that distinction is important because often what is most loving in a given situation may not be interpreted as love by the one receiving it. So for instance, if I let my children determine their own dietary needs, it would be made up of, nearly as I can tell, entirely of Swedish fish and Sour Patch Kids. And while no one is doubting the goodness of God in giving us those two things, a loving parent does not allow their children to solely partake in a diet made up of things that are ultimately not going to be good for them. And when I tell my children that they've had enough or that they can't have more or no, they can't go back and get even more candy, it may not feel loving to them in the moment. It may feel like a correction or it may feel like I'm depriving them of something good. But what I'm after for them is something infinitely greater. Now apply that same idea to our spiritual lives and the way that the Bible approaches the whole concept of what it is to be a Christian to trust the goodness of God, to trust his provision, to trust his care, to trust him even when he's leading me into things that perhaps I wouldn't initially choose or feel like deprivation. And John gives this not as a new instruction here, but rather as a reminder of the first message that they ever heard upon being granted this new life in Christ, a message that was given by Jesus himself when he said in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. In other words, Jesus himself is saying, you know what command I'm really concerned with? You know what I really want to mark your life as a follower of mine? If I had to pick just one thing, do you know what the one thing is that I really want you to grok? That you show others the same love that I showed you. See, this is part of how the love of Christ is different than worldly love. Worldly love, whether it's shown through the physical, through the relational, through the emotional, or through any other means, always has me as its termination point. And here's what, I'm, here's what I mean by that. Imagine just for a moment that there are two points in your life, you, yourself and someone else that you care about deeply, and there's a line connecting you. Even if you don't know Jesus, you can love somebody else, but the strength and the duration of your love will, will at least in some way be limited. 
It'll be limited by your feelings. It'll be limited by your circumstances. It'll be limited by your upbringing. It'll be limited by the fulfillment of your expectations from that person or the lack of the fulfillment of your expectations from that person. And the reason why is that in a relationship like that, when you don't have Christ involved, the source of love is within you. And because of that, it's limited by who you are. And ultimately, you'll only be able to love someone to the extent that that love is reciprocated or affirmed, which means that ultimately, when you love somebody without Jesus Christ being your motivation for love, the end result of your love is so that you can receive love. And it terminates on you. It starts with you and it ends with you and it's ultimately, on its basis, selfish. And in that way, worldly love is self-serving. But imagine then adding Christ to that mix. Imagine adding a third point, that in Christ, God himself becomes the new source of your love one that is absolutely accepting, one that is perpetually patient, one that is forever forgiving, one that is completely caring, and then you become a conduit for that love. And that love doesn't just terminate with you, but it actually leads you into the love and worship of God. It fills you with his love even more if you're trying to understand it from a human perspective so that you can, to an even greater extent, express that love to others and it results in the worship and the love of God himself. And in that way, God's love finds an, ex- finds an eternal expression in infinite humanity. And the expectation of this text is that your love for your brothers and your sisters in the faith would be the primary outworking of this eternal expression of love in your life. So going back to what we said a few weeks ago, you cannot claim to love Christ and to hate those who belong to him. It would be as silly as me expressing to you that I love you, but I hate your family. That I love you, but that I hate those who mean the most to you. Because if I love you, by extension, I need to have a love for those whom you love. And so central to the life of the Christian is this self-sacrificial, others-serving love that John goes out of his way to say that this is the same message they heard from the beginning. In other words, this is the core of the gospel message, the love of God being expressed through Jesus Christ into the broken hearts of mankind for their restoration, their joy, their satisfaction in him to ultimately be received back in love and worship to the Father. It's eternal, it's circular. And the route that John goes down to explain this idea follows that same analogy, although in an unexpected way. Here's what he says in verse 12 of 1 John chapter 3. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one. Remember, he's just coming out of this description of saying that everybody is either a child of God or a child of the devil. Here he's making the claim that Cain is a child of the devil who is of the evil one. He didn't know God, and he murdered his brother. And why did he murder him, asked John? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. So John references back to this story from Genesis chapter 4. If you've been around the church for any length of time, this is a story that you know. God comes to Adam and Eve after the fall and he says, I want you as part of your worship of me to make sacrifices to me. 
And he gives this same instruction to Adam and Eve's children, these two brothers named Cain and Abel. Abel was a shepherd. He slaughters a lamb to offer to God, and God, it says, was pleased with Abel's offering. But Cain was a farmer who worked the field. He took some crops and offered those to God. And because of the state of his heart, because his affection was not toward God, God looked at his sacrifice and said, this is not indicative of where your heart's at, Cain. I don't accept this offering. You're giving me lip service, but you don't mean it. And according to the text, since God was pleased with Abel's offering and not pleased with Cain's offering, Cain responds with all sorts of resentment towards his brother. In fact, a resentment that is so strong that out of spite, he actually goes out and murders his own brother. The first murder recorded for us in the history of humanity is between two brothers. And perhaps as the church heard this instruction that John gives, they're wondering to themselves, well, what does murder have to do with this? I don't have any plans to murder anybody, but John seemingly anticipates that response and he gets to the heart of the issue in verse 15. Because he says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Strong language. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And the idea that John puts forward here is taken directly from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says the same thing in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, when he says, you have heard it said that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. In other words, says Jesus, the law has always taught you that murder is wrong, that it's never acceptable, that it's never okay, and that if you murder, you will stand before God for that action. But Jesus goes on to say that if you hate your own brother, you are liable for the same sort of judgment. In other words, the root sin that sits below, that sits underneath hatred is the same one that leads to murder. The core sin under the sin of hatred is the same core sin as what sits underneath murder. Because hatred is at its core a judgment about the worth of somebody else, about the value of somebody else. It's a judgment about someone who is created in the image of God, and in this way, it is a declaration that God himself has messed up, that God made a mistake, that the God of the universe should not have made this person or should not have made them the way that they are, a declaration that things ought to be different, and a declaration that you, rather than God, should be sitting on the throne. And in this context, remember, he's not talking here about moments where we act out of anger or frustration or where we harbor resentment. He's again using the Gnostics, these people who claimed Christianity but had added to the gospel of Jesus Christ by saying that you needed some extra knowledge, some extra experience, some extra gift, who went on to hate these true followers of Jesus Christ and by doing so had given evidence that they never knew Christ to begin with. And conversely, to love brothers and sisters, according to John, is evidence that you belong to Jesus. This doesn't mean that Christians never disagree or don't get into tiffs. Of course we do. Families fight. But families also forgive and bring restoration. And along those lines, says John in verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. 
This is a hard word for us to hear because by nature we don't want to be hated. We want to be accepted. At the very least we want to be tolerated. But the Bible makes no such promise to those who know Jesus Christ. Jesus gave the same instruction to his people in John chapter 12. He said, understand that there's a time coming where you're going to experience all kinds of persecution and you need to love one another because the world is going to hate you because you're of me. And John here says the very same thing. Don't be surprised that people who are not part of the same family, who do not abide in the same source of life, and who do not know the same God that you know, don't love you. Because inherently, when you're a Christian, when you're a believer in Jesus Christ, what you have declared is, apart from the intervention of Jesus Christ, I am a sinner in, who is deserving of condemnation and judgment. That there is nothing good in me and nothing I can do to save myself. Your life, in other words, as a Christian, whether you intend it to or not, stands as an indictment of those who don't know Jesus. Because what we believe is that we're inherently sinful in need of a Savior. That we are broken beyond repair. That apart from God himself intervening in our lives, we have no hope and have no confidence and have no life. And the Bible, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, says, for we, that is those of us who know Jesus Christ, we are the aroma, the scent of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. I don't know if you've ever been someplace where you've just kind of randomly had the sense that the person you're talking to is a believer. I've had that experience on countless occasions where you talk to somebody or you interact with somebody or just see somebody and go, man, there seems like there's something different. I bet they know Jesus. And on a couple of occasions, I've acted on that and had conversations with folks only to find out that, yeah, in fact, they do know Jesus. Well, what's going on in that moment? There's a scent from life to life the aroma of Jesus Christ in some way that may or may not be tangible is being expressed in that individual. But the Bible is going to say that the scent that might, might be pleasing to you as a Christian of life to life to some people is a stench. It's offensive because the gospel inherently is offensive. It declares that we stand guilty and condemned, that apart from Christ, we're not good enough. And John includes this instruction not to be surprised that the world hates you as a motivation for believers to cling to one another. As one commentator said it, Christians will need to adhere to one another in mutual love in order to be prepared to face hostility. In order to be able to face hostility, you have to know you're not alone. You need brothers and sisters. Bonhoeffer, the great pastor of the early 20th century, said it this way, referencing Jesus' teaching on this idea that the meek will inherit the earth from the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, the powerless are given a piece of the earth. In other words, those who know Jesus Christ, they have the church their community, their property, their brothers and sisters in the midst of persecution, even unto the cross. A part of the gift of what it is to be 
to be given new life in Jesus Christ is that you're brought into a new family of Jesus Christ. And by making this statement, John is, in, is, John is indicting the Gnostics, these people who had been part of the church and had been friends of these Christians who were not Christians at all, but are rather part of this unbelieving world that now hated them. See, the world is fine with religion that is indistinguishable from itself. The world is fine with religion that emphasizes spirituality so long as it doesn't run afoul of the world's value systems. And that's exactly where these, what these Gnostics had promoted. A religion, a spirituality, is something that was even in the name of Christianity that was inherently inoffensive because it didn't run afoul of anything the world believed. And the world is always fine with that kind of religion. So, John continues in verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life. We know that we have assurance of belonging to Jesus Christ. Why? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So how do you know that you're a part of this family of Christ? Because you love your brothers and sisters. And if you don't love those who love the gospel, it's a sign that you haven't taken part in the new life through Christ, but that you abide in death without him. So here's the operative question for us. Everything to this point has been diagnostic. Here's how you know where you fall. But how do you actually get this love for the brothers? Or to the extent that you as a Christian really wrestle in your own heart with love, how do you address your struggle with hatred? Do we muster it up? Do we paste on a smile? Do we bite our tongue when we're upset and just continue to press on? No, John gives us the answer in verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John says, if you want to know this kind of love, here's what you need to know. You need to know him that laid down his life for you. We referenced earlier the idea from the very mouth of Jesus that no one has greater life and to lay, has greater love rather than to lay down his life for his friend. And if that is true, then the way that we come to know that love is by seeing that love displayed. And that love was once and for all displayed perfectly at the cross. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did something that did not serve him at all. That he was driven entirely by his love for you and for me. That in fact, what he embarked on was a self-sacrifice project of which you and I are the beneficiary. That Jesus Christ, in fact, gave up everything. That he gave up perfect communion with the Father and with the Spirit. That he gave up the perfect love in that relationship. That he gave up the perfect worship that he was experiencing in glory. That he gave up everything. Why? To come after a people that had explicitly rejected him. 
a people whom he knew, in fact, were going to go out of their way to murder him, and not just murder him, but murder him in the most brutal fashion known to man. But that his suffering was going to go even deeper than that because the most brutal thing that Jesus Christ experienced on the cross wasn't the physical suffering that he experienced, but the spiritual suffering. That he did it so that your sin and mine, past, present, and future, the sin of all those who would know him, would be placed on him at the cross and he would experience the eternal judgment of God in a singular moment at the cross where God the Father turns his back on his own son. That Jesus Christ experienced in that moment the essence of hell, which is the absence of the presence of God in his own body for you and for me. He laid down his life for you. But also, what does that declare about who you are now in him? Greater love has no one than this, but that he lay down his life for his friends. That Jesus himself experienced all of this and he did it so that he could consider you his friend. Jesus, the friend of sinners, came to make orphans who had been abandoned, who had rebelled and rejected into family. So much so that according to Hebrews chapter two, verse 11, he who sanctifies, that is Jesus, and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Do you understand that when we pray to our Father, there is a very real sense in which Christ functions as a brother, that he intercedes, that he's a go-between, that there is an affection, a loving care, that he is willing your good. That he has that sort of intimate, self-sacrificing, other-serving love toward you. And now, we have the opportunity and the responsibility to become a channel of that love. To be generous ourselves when we see a brother or sister in need, not to use people in order to accumulate goods, as one theologian said it, but rather to use our goods in order to care for people. And that's exactly what John is inviting us into this morning. He says, how do you know that you're part of this family? All you need to do is look to the cross. That's the love that's been given for you. And now that you've experienced that love, if you know and are in Jesus Christ, you have the opportunity to extend that love outward, not drawn out of your, out of your own source of love, something you can muster and something you can create and something you can work up, because inevitably that comes from a false place and it leads you to burnout but rather to draw from an infinite source, an eternal source of love, to be able to, an ex to extend a love that the world does not understand and has of yet not experienced. So that by means of your love, others being and experiencing that love, their love and their affection and their worship would be driven to God. An eternal expression of love found in finite people. Do you see the beauty and the wonder 
of a simple text like this. To demonstrate and to extend the love that was shown to us. To lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. To live not just for our own pleasure or our momentary joys, but to live for something infinitely more valuable. And to have the confidence to continue on because of the relationship that we have with God. It's a gift and a wonder that comes only through Jesus Christ. Be encouraged in it today. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for for a gift that is so beyond our understanding. God, a love that is so concerned with our eternal state that nothing short of you sacrificing yourself on our behalf could account for it. And so God, to those that are in this room who have maybe wrestled or continue to wrestle with whether or not they know you, would today be the day where they are encouraged to rest first and foremost in the love that you have given them. That their affirmation and their assurance is not found in the things that they do as if they could somehow earn their way in, but rather what they do is born of who they are already. That as we talked about last week, their identity informs their behavior. So God, help us not to try to treat the symptom without addressing the source, but rather to see that since we have a whole new source of love in and through Jesus Christ, we have now been enabled to express that love to our brothers and sisters. And God, for those here who may not know this love, for whom all of this is academic, intellectual, a study and oddity and interest, would today be the day where they, maybe for the first time in their life, see this as something so significantly more. A beautiful relationship with a loving Savior who is willing to call us brothers and sisters, who is not ashamed to call us as part of his family. And would we rest securely and confidently in the love that you have for us. God, through our lives, would you draw a world that is lost and dying to yourself? Would they see in us something different? The scent of life to those who are being saved. And we'll trust you to do what only you can do in our lives and in theirs. And it's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.